0: Students that live in the small towns and rural areas of America are less likely to go to college than those who live either in or near urban centers. There are a lot of reasons for this. There aren't many colleges in rural areas. Their parents are less likely to have gone themselves, and so maybe the expectation isn't being cultivated at home. There are fewer academic college prep options and counseling resources. But those who live in rural areas and small towns in this country aren't a monolith. They represent a really diverse demographic range of people, each of whom might require something a little different when it comes to college access. But the truth is that whatever is needed, there needs to be more of it than is currently the case. So says my guest today, Dr. Andrew Moe, Director of Admission at Swarthmore College, and he's leading a national effort to make it easier for students from rural places to go to college. Welcome to The Crush. Welcome to The Crush. I'm Davin Sweeney, a college counselor at CollegeWise, and this is a podcast where I talk to all sorts of people in uh, the college and college admissions landscape, including those who are doing work to improve college access for groups who may be having a particularly difficult time accessing it. People like my guest today, Dr. Andrew Moe, who has been hard at work focusing national attention on a really sticky admissions question, which is, how do we get more kids from rural places going to college? And from the perspective of the admissions office, how do we get more representatives from more colleges to spend more of their precious time, energy, and recruitment budgets reaching kids who are hard to reach? Because... Well, they're pretty far out there and how best to support not just the kids, but the teachers, the school counselors and uh, others in their community who are supporting them on their college quest. So there are 6.2 million Americans living in rural communities, a number which has dropped by about a third since 1950, as you'll hear me surmise in the interview. Nevertheless, according to the National Center for Education Statistics, half of all operating school districts and a third of all public schools are in rural communities. So enter the rural and small town special interest group started by Andrew and Peggy Jenkins of Palouse Pathways, which is a nonprofit. It, helping with the college process and located in Moscow, Idaho, hometown of one of my favorite teachers of all time, my high school IB biology teacher, Michelle Dumas. And uh, Moscow is about, uh, for reference here, uh, five hours driving east of uh, Seattle. This is one of many special interest groups that convenes via our National Professional Association, NACAC. And uh, the organization's mission is, as they write, To bring rural and small town admissions and college counseling professionals, as well as those committed to rural and small town education, together to increase college access and success, promote college-going culture in rural areas, and support counselors and students at rural and small town schools. The purpose of the group is to bring together professionals who support rural education and share knowledge of rural assets, challenges, and issues with one another. I drove to Philadelphia to talk to Andrew about his own really interesting personal journey to his big fancy, albeit uh, empty at the time, new office, and his motivations for reaching out to help this group of college goers in particular. I am uh, sitting in. Is this your office? This is my new office. Yeah, so that's why there's nothing in it, really. <laughs> Correct. Right? It's because it's in transition. Yes. One one soul leaving, a new one mm-hmm. occupying mm-hmm. this corporeal space. (laughs) You are now the director of admissions.
1: I am. uh, And by the time your listeners are are hearing this, I absolutely will have the official title. Uh, This is my uh, last week as senior associate dean, um, which I just got promoted a few months ago. So I'm super excited to take on this new role,
0: man. Um, So you haven't the business cards are like they're being printed. Yeah, they're being printed right now. Okay. Yep. You don't have like your new assistant you know, scraping off the old title and, like, <laughs> I penciling it in. I do not. know <laughs> no. <laughs> uh it's a nice space yeah it's nice as it's, i said to you on my way in it's is the first time i've been to to swarthmore yeah and uh not
1: bad yeah it's um sort of in the heart of of leadership here we actually have um on both sides of the uh, third floor here we have student residence halls uh so spaces where students live really? um yeah which is kind of interesting yeah. uh so our lounge right out here uh, outside of the spaces is often occupied by current students um, and, uh, we have our dean and vice president over here and, and a bunch of administrative staff. And then all of the, um, uh, associate deans, assistant deans are on the second floor.
0: Okay. That's sort of wild that you have students living where.
1: Right. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely.
0: Are they like drunk in the middle of the day when you're trying to do work?
1: Generally, no. Okay. Generally they're from nine to five. They're in pretty good shape.
0: Well, you've got, you know, upstanding yes. students here. It's worth yes. more. Yes. Um, well, cool. I'm, uh, thanks for taking the time here on this uh, weirdly autumnal day mm-hmm. in August. It's 46 degrees outside. Um, <laughs> I don't think it's quite that cold. No, you're right. It's only, <laughs> let's see what it says, 70. Yeah. No, it's 66. It's nice. Yeah, I know. It's, uh, it's fall just around the corner. Right. You know, it's almost Labor Day, so school is going to be in soon for all the children. Right. Right. Traffic will will pick will up. Pick up, yeah. <laughs> Mercifully, my child will be in the care of other adults. It's <laughs> great. That'll be handy. Um, and uh, admissions counselors everywhere will fan mm-hmm. out across the globe to yes. go and look for those eager minds to mm-hmm. fill their seats. I mean, it's but it's already been underway for. Yes. a little while for you guys right and for a lot of folks especially when it comes to doing like international travel right
1: Yeah it doesn't doesn't really quit uh, I've been several places this summer
0: uh tonight Where I leave Where have you been cuz cuz oh, don't boy. gloss over I mean this is you've had you know any buddy that you know yeah. follows anything that you do on on social media and stuff we'll, we'll already know but let's rub it in where have you been
1: well let's see so yesterday i got back from uh, california i was in los angeles for the point foundation helping uh, community college transfer students get to their four year destination um i've been in nashville we planned a coalition day for rural tennessee in nashville as a part of the coalition
0: coalition application
1: coalition for college i think is the official name of yes. it now but yes they have the coalition application um, so we had about 60 folks, 65 folks join us in Parsons, Tennessee. Half of us were uh, admission officers and half were actually school counselors in the, in the area, which Parsons, is pretty exciting. Parsons, Tennessee. hmm What's going on there? ut martin parson center so it's the satellite of ut martin wow yeah and i found out in planning this that the provost of ut martin is actually a swarthmore grad and he was really excited we were there yeah i'll say yeah yeah so um so there have been a, a plenty of plenty of uh places i've been this past summer this this evening i leave for india thailand singapore over the next couple of weeks doing some group travel here
0: So group travel, meaning you and a handful of other institutional representatives go swing through these places looking for kids that want to come here.
1: Yep. So I'm going with um, Adam Sapp from uh, Pomona um, and a new person, uh, an assistant dean from um,
0: Williams College, which is really exciting. How do you guys play overseas in terms of this? You know, I mean, I would imagine. Oh, we're friendly. No, I mean, I know that you guys. (laughs) <laughs> Let me rephrase. Uh, colleges like Pomona and Swarthmore and Williams, yeah. I mean, I would imagine are the these, I mean, you know, you drive on campus here and mm-hmm. it's that sort of. Idyllic, you know, storybook kind of American mm-hmm. college campus thing, mm-hmm. and, and I mean, is that how you know students and families from overseas tend to? Do they? Do you find that there's much of a deficit that you've got to overcome in terms of teaching them about your places?
1: There's a pretty significant deficit in understanding liberal arts colleges. Mm-hmm. Um, just the 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 fact that we're called a college can sometimes throw students because many places abroad um, they call their high schools colleges, um, and so it can be a little confusing at first. Um, so we have to talk a lot about the the liberal arts experience and difference that this place offers um compared to our much larger you know brothers and sisters on the university side and and they you know they've heard of all the prestigious selective schools uh, with university in their name but not always mm-hmm. um the, the the selective liberal arts colleges i mean
0: that's a Devs, you have to overcome. I think a lot in this country too. Still, right? Yes, I mean, it's that's a, true. Mm-hmm.
1: Not yeah. to the same extent, but um, absolutely, we have to do a lot of work, um, sort of lifting up the college, the liberal arts college
0: experience, and to help people understand that liberal arts doesn't just mean hippie stuff.
1: Right. It's not a political orientation. It's not an art school. Uh, you know, it, it depends on the audience that you're talking with. You know, yeah. I'm first generation in my family to go to college. I did not know what a liberal arts college was. Um, uh, Beloit College was the closest college to me
0: um, in Wisconsin. I almost went to Beloit College. Really? Mm-hmm. Huh. It's because I had a buddy that went there and he liked it. Interesting. I know.
1: Yeah. So I I didn't consider it. I thought you know I wanted to go to public university and go to one of these really large places, which I did end up going to a really large place, um, and uh, which was Arizona, Arizona State. State? Yeah. yeah, yeah. So I got a big scholarship to Arizona State and uh, really enjoyed myself. But um, yeah, and in, in, even in the United States, it's it's an uphill battle describing liberal arts and what that actually means.
0: And I mean, you, so you've got some experiences on on the sort of wild, different ends of the you know, collegiate experience. Yes. spectrum.
1: Yes. So I, I started at ASU um, and graduated uh, and then went to Vanderbilt as a as a master's degree student, went to the University of Pennsylvania for my doctorate and now work at a really small place. So um, right. those are pretty different places in terms of selectivity and the kinds of students they are searching out for and um, and the students that we attract. Um, so it's been pretty exciting having those four different experiences in my background.
0: How do you approach the question if you're talking to a student that's sort of if if they are making a decision between like really big and really small, Mm -hmm. you know, what do you what, what kinds of things do you think it's important for them to keep in mind if if they might be open to both?
1: Yeah, I try to I try to paint the picture of what it's like to be on a big campus, um, having a thousand student organizations and pretty much programming every single day that you can possibly imagine, and and never seeing sort of the same person, um, but also walking into an introductory introductory class in psychology and having five hundred or a thousand students sitting there, right? Mm-hmm. So it, I think it takes a, a very specific type of personality to thrive in that environment versus you know, being at a place like Swarthmore where nearly 40% of our classes have fewer than 10 students, right? Being in a class of five students is pretty different. Mm -hmm. and and also tapping into some of those additional resources, right? And so what does it mean to have a huge endowment for just 1,600 students? What does that mean for financial aid as well as your day-to-day experience? So, you know, I don't have a strong feeling on what is best. I don't think uh, that really exists. I think it exists for each individual student to make that decision. But as long as students have options in front of them, I think that's that's the best case
0: scenario. Right. Okay. well, cool. I mean, we're here today to talk in specific because I've you know, we've uh, you have been busy over the course of the past few years, I think, really gathering some steam behind Mm -hmm. an effort to encourage. I would say specifically, but correct me if I'm wrong, the college side folks' uh, efforts on um, paying a little bit more attention to students that might be coming from rural communities. Mm. Um, and I wanted to learn a little bit more about that because mm-hmm. this is, I mean, as you've identified and as if you've as you've sort of organized around the idea that this is a an un- underserved community, mm-hmm. demographically speaking, mm-hmm. um, you know, they are, they're they're remote by definition, Mm -hmm. uh, hard to get to, Mm -hmm. uh, hard to get information to, Mm -hmm. and to get them to come to you Mm -hmm. especially, right? Um, There's this new media organization that's called Open Campus, Mm. and they put uh, something out in their newsletter not long ago that um, they were talking about a report that a professor at Wisconsin Mm. uh, named Nick Hillman did, and he was talking about education deserts. Mm -hmm. So we Mm -hmm. talk about, you know, food deserts where there are places where they're just aren't any grocery stores right. for a long ways away, but there are places like education deserts. And so he says that uh, like half of all students at public universities grew up less than 50 miles away from home. Mm-hmm. And that the further away a student lives from a college, the less likely they are mm-hmm. to attend. And that just 14% of colleges are in rural counties. Mm-hmm. So I found those numbers to be really mm-hmm. stark because, you know, somebody like me that works with students now in the high school side, you know, and, and it is this very sort of annoyingly common refrain to hear kids say, I don't want to go to college in the middle of nowhere. Mm-hmm. And you hear, and I see a lot of colleges that are sort of classified as rural mm-hmm. in their setting, mm-hmm. but only 14% of colleges are in rural counties. So it seems that we could stand it f- first to kind of define terms a little bit here. So yeah. tell, help me there first. Like, who are we talking about when we talk about rural
1: that's a really difficult question. I know to I like to
0: ask a real big hard one right <laughs> off the bat and then
1: we'll we'll narrow it down. Yeah, so uh, um, I'm-
0: let me back up. Let me back up and just ask, how did you get interested in this in the first place? And then sure. we can and then we can go back and, and, yeah. and start to narrow it down. Yeah. So um, I didn't grow
1: up in a super duper rural area. I grew up in what I've been uh, calling a small isolated city. Um, so we had some resources, but we didn't have colleges visiting us. In Where my, did you grow up? I grew up in Janesville, Wisconsin. Okay. So uh, south central Wisconsin, uh, a couple of high schools, a few middle schools. Um, uh, we had a Walmart, we had a Target, we had those sorts of resources. Is there right? Um, We were on a major interstate um, uh, drop-off, but uh, we didn't have colleges visiting in my four years uh, in high school. I don't remember a four-year university visiting. I do remember the military recruiters in our commons area every day, Um, and so I, uh, when we had these discussions about college, oftentimes in the auditorium, they would be pushing um, technical school and community college, and that was great for a lot of uh, the folks that I graduated with. Um, But that wasn't really my pathway. I was really thinking about um, a four-year university, but I didn't know public or private. I didn't know how to get out of state. Were you the first in your family to go to college? Yeah, I was first in my family to go to college.
0: So then where did that sort of image for you first kind of show up in your brain that you said, I'm going to do something different. I'm going to go to this thing that just doesn't seem to really be available. And it's a four-year experience.
1: I probably remember when I was five, six, seven years old, sitting on my grandparents' porch and having conversations around, I want to go to college. And Hmm. I remember my family pushing back on me and saying, you know, you're super duper smart, but we don't know how you're going to do that. Right. We don't know how you're going to pay for that, how Hmm. you're going to get a scholarship. There are just no pathways in front of me to figure this, this complex problem out. Um, But I can Continued in school and and um, made really substantive relationships with teachers who yeah. really pushed me. Um, in a community like that, the only people in front of you that are college educated really, as a low income student, are teachers and your pediatrician. Right there, there's really no one else that you can look up to and say, "Hey, how'd you do this?" Um, and so I really thought about uh, staying in Wisconsin, moving out of Wisconsin, and I knew that you know, being as a, an LGBT uh, person growing up, I needed to get out of my small town and Mm -hmm. I needed to experience the world. Um, So I said, I want to go out of state. So when I went to my counselor in high school, I said, I want to go out of state she was super duper nice and she was like, I don't do out of state. Um, so there's a big book of colleges in the counseling center. Meaning
0: that she didn't have much knowledge about options outside of, right? Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
1: So she didn't, she did, she didn't usually counsel students to go out of state. Um, she said there was a big book of colleges that I could thumb through in the counseling center and good luck. Um, and I did, and I went to the library and I'm a pack rat and I saved all this material (laughs) and I posted on social media sometimes, um, just to show. I'll have to come back
0: to your office then. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, in a couple of months to see evidence of this, because absolutely. yeah, this is probably as unlike you as it's liable to be, right? <laughs> right. Okay. Right. Good. Uh,
1: I've done some training actually here at Swarthmore with our admission staff on what my college search was like, so oh, folks wow. understand. That's uh, awesome. Yeah. So it's it's kind of fun to yeah, go back and look at How the hell did you artifacts. land
0: on ASU? Uh,
1: I got a scholarship, um, so I was super involved in Key Club. Um, so Key Club International offered a scholarship to ASU for out-of-state scholarships. Um, for so there the, are
0: these national kinds of networks, right, right? Organizations like that that might that are in a position to sort of put college in front of kids' faces that I wasn't heard about it.
1: Right. Um, and uh, and so I saw every year at the convention these students who got these big scholarships to ASU and I thought, I'm going to be that student. Um, and luckily I did earn a scholarship to ASU. So I, I had a full tuition fee waiver or a full tuition waiver um, and an additional stipend. It was still tough as a low-income student. I didn't have access To uh, FAFSA, just because of being rejected from my home for being gay, that was really, really tough. Um, I didn't have access to those resources, so I had to work a few jobs. I had to find scholarships. You
0: didn't, you weren't able to contact your parents to get the information that you needed. No, they
1: refused. Yeah. And um, I appealed the situation to the financial aid office and um, for complicated reasons, they denied it. So I had to kind of do it do it on my own. Declaring financial independence yeah. is really tough. Mm. Um, I filed an appeal for a dependency override, um, but because wow. I couldn't uh, point to clergy or people who were not related to my family um, to say, you know, we know the parents in the situation, we know what's going on. I couldn't mm. point to anyone like that. Mm. So I, I, had to, um, I had to do it on my own.
0: How did you continue to sort of uh maintain the level of energy and persistence that you needed in order to just kind of see this through because i think this is what these are the kids that get out of communities like that that otherwise don't have the resources that you're trying to gather that we'll get into right um i knew that my scholarship was four
1: years Mm -hmm. and i didn't have anything else right i didn't have an extension of the scholarship and i just had to do it um and i think there was a lot of sort of grit and resiliency that i learned over the years Um, being a queer kid in small town wisconsin uh you develop a thick skin i think Mm -hmm. and you have to grow up pretty quickly um and so you know i i always think uh how did i do it and i don't know if i have answers to those questions Mm -hmm. um i just did it
0: Mm -hmm. that's really amazing i think uh obviously more sort of fuel for the fire and mm-hmm. the mission that you're on now. Mm-hmm. Um, but tell me a little bit more about that mission that you are on now. And I think that yeah. the, the way that, you know, uh, it has certainly come to manifest itself at this point, at least in in, in terms of my radar screen mm-hmm. is the special interest group mm-hmm. uh, at, uh, as under the umbrella of NACAC, mm-hmm. which is the National Association of College Admissions Counseling. There are a lot of these special interest groups where people gather. I think mm-hmm. you need 15 people who mm-hmm. are members of the organization to sign a, mm-hmm. a piece of paper and you know have kind of a mission statement and then voila you are right. a, you are a special interest group right. and you can talk about all kinds of different things so there are latino special interest mm-hmm. groups there are special interest groups for the international baccalaureate mm-hmm. organization so on and so forth and mm-hmm. you've just started one for for uh for rural yep students rural issues what yeah. are we
1: what are we calling it uh this so this is the nacac rural and small town special interest group okay um and it's umbrella for anyone who cares about rural college access mm-hmm. so we have college admissions officers, we have high school counselors, CBO advisors, we have faculty members um, who are studying these issues. And we have CBOs are community-based
0: organizations. Yes,
1: community-based organizations um, serving rural and small-town students. Um, so Peggy uh, Jenkins from Palouse Pathways, which is a um, community-based organization in um, eastern Washington and rural Idaho, um, she and I had some conversations a few years ago, and we said, you know, We wish more people cared about this or that we found those people that do care about these issues. Um, And so this past November, we had that Mm -hmm. conversation about uh, starting the special interest group. Mm -hmm. And we said, you know, we only need 15 people. I think we can gather 15 people for this. Um, So in November, Peggy and I started it. Um, We sent out a Google form to our college counselor Facebook group and a bunch of other folks. and so we are what 9 months later and we have more than 1200 members wow. in our sig
0: and so yeah this this uh, in a in a month or so uh, is the NACAC conference, and right. you'll probably have the first opportunity to really kind of see this right. room full of people. That's going to be exciting. Right.
1: It's going to be exciting, um, but what I will say is that unlike many other SIGs, which are conference-based, um, so a lot of folks are sort of gathering at the conference, talking for 45 minutes, and then they wait until the next conference. We are very intentional not to do that. Right. So we have monthly meetings um, on GoToWebinar, which are recorded for folks who are not able to attend. Um, we have more than 500 high school counselors um, that are part of our SIG. We have more than 300 individual colleges part of our SIG as well. Um, so it's really exciting to see this kind of energy. Um, you know, the reason why we started this is because rural students are actually the most likely to graduate high school compared to the su- their suburban and urban peers, but they're the least likely to go to college, right? Um, if you okay. look around at selective schools, especially, they're deeply underrepresented on our college campuses. Um, so doing this work at Swart More, we found that about 5% of our students are rural or small town identified, depending on what your definition actually is. Um, We looked around at some of our peers, Pomona, Columbia, Yale, they're all at 5%, even though depending on the number rural and small town students are probably at least 25 maybe up to 35 percent of the student population
0: so how do you count that what do you what do you what, what goes into the into the calculation there to be able to define those communities as such yeah so the federal government has, way to get at the get at the answer <laughs>
1: the federal government has a bunch of ways to do this uh, we've chosen the National Center for Education Statistics mm-hmm. um, so they define schools as city suburban uh, rural and town um, and so we we looked at all of the rural schools and all the town schools to say, does this fit our definition? And what I will say is that Swarthmore arrived at a slightly different definition as the SIG. And that's okay with us, um, as long as um, schools know if they, if students are underrepresented, represented, or overrepresented. They need to know these numbers, and they need to come up with a definition on their own. So for the SIG itself, uh, we include all public and charter schools at rural and town schools. Um, plus, we also include from the college board, any school public or private that self-identifies as a rural area school we get to about 12,000 high schools in America based on that definition
0: Wow that's a lot that's a lot that's a substantial proportion of this absolutely the population. I mean I think and I uh, uh, what do we know about I mean and to, to what extent are we able to say you know the average rural student is X.
1: Uh, That's really tough. Um, You know, we certainly have a lot of assets and challenges um, that students bring to the table, right? And so oftentimes, I think in research, we have a tendency just to talk about the challenges. And there are certainly challenges that we need to overcome, right? And so um, that might be broadband access and a lack of it in rural spaces. Um, So if you're talking about doing rural recruitment uh, over the internet, that's not necessarily easily available, right? Um, If we talk about curricular challenges, Um, And so there's some uh, disparity between advanced placement courses being offered in urban spaces versus rural spaces. So this
0: is something that might, you know, to the untrained admissions counseling eye Mm -hmm. uh, in an office like this might look and you might look at a student that doesn't have any APs available in their high school curriculum or only one or something and that's all they've taken that maybe they're not ready right by one definition, they're not ready
1: or they're not taking the most rigorous course selection oftentimes schools don't have what we call school profiles which Mm -hmm. is a listing of kind of stats and data around um, what the school offers Um, and if there's no school profile oftentimes an admissions officer might have questions about what is the most rigorous course selection available at this school right so you might be playing into stereotypes or preconceived notions of what you think about that school um, versus actually having the data in front of you.
0: What are some of the other challenges that you've identified rural students face in uh, approaching the college admissions process?
1: Certainly, um uh, not wanting to leave home, not wanting to leave their family, I think is really important. Um, a lot of these students are coming from these strong, close-knit communities. Um, and, and that's a... I have he- this
0: idea in my head that they've been there for generations and everything. Right. Is that necessarily the case? Absolutely. And, yeah. It
1: could be the case. Uh, not necessarily, right? We want to be careful to not paint uh, rural communities as this monolithic group, yeah. right? And so if you look at um, rural communities in um, Western Alaska, um, I was just meeting with a counselor, at the Rural College Access Summit from Western Alaska, and she represents ten different schools. And in order to visit her schools and help those students, she needs, she needs to take a bush plane to those schools right. every Monday, right? That's very different than maybe South Texas or in rural Maine. Um, well,
0: you think also about you know maybe some uh, Native American communities, right? Correct. Where, you know they're they're way out there, and right. they're. Concerns about leaving home and leaving the family are going to be wildly different Absolutely. from the, you know, descendant of German immigrants in Nebraska right. or something, right? Right, right. So you right. do have to have a lot of different levels of sensitivity about these different communities that you're going to go into. You do.
1: And it, it creates challenges from the SIG standpoint because we can't just say, oh, well, th- these are the 10 things that we can tell you about a rural student, right? Mm-hmm. We have to recognize the just vast diversity in that experience.
0: Mm-hmm. Wow. So what are some of the things that you're hoping to be able to convey to members of the SIG and then by extension, those that might just be kind of paying attention to what you guys are doing?
1: Right. Um, First of all, it's visibility. It's to ensure that um, rural schools are represented in the media, um, in social media. Um, Many of these schools, these 12,000 schools are not visited by college admissions officers, right? Um, We're not Skyping with them. We're not calling with them. Um, We tend as a profession to spend our time in places um, that we've already been over and over and over again in New York City and Chicago and suburban communities. So we need to ensure that college admission officers and colleges in general know that these schools exist. Um, So one thing that we've done is we've started this um, social media campaign. It's called hashtag rural 365. And it's where I personally will tweet out every single day for a year, um, more than 30 High schools from the from the sig definition right these 12,000 schools mm-hmm. so at the end of the year all 12,000 of those will be tweeted out so that um, school uh, so that admission officers can actually um, know that these schools exist right it's mm-hmm. not about oh I see, see this tweet now I'm going to visit this school it's really about visibility and ensuring that our school counselors um, and those communities are highlighted um, we also have another campaign where um, I'm actually uh, tweeting out just individual schools and so the school says, hey, we'd love some visibility from mm-hmm. college admissions officers. You have more than a thousand followers. Why don't we um, put two and two together? And mm-hmm, so mm-hmm. Um, I come up with a map. I come up with their logo, whatever it might be. Um, and I tweet out, you know, please go and visit this school in rural Maine. Um, and folks have liked it. And, and um, about it's been 26 days since we started these two campaigns. And we have more than 30,000 impressions in those 26 days. And so maybe we could get to half a million Twitter impressions by the end of the year.
0: One of the things that strikes me as a challenge, and you are, as a director of admissions now, for crying out loud, (laughs) in a position to wrangle with this challenge uh, to a certain extent, which is that, you know, you talked before about Swarthmore being a very tiny school with Mm -hmm. a lot of money on Mm -hmm. hand. Mm -hmm. There are a whole lot of schools, big and small, that don't have a lot of money on Mm -hmm. hand. Mm -hmm. And when you're talking about, and please help me because I want to make sure that I'm not approaching the the rural student as a monolith mm-hmm. but uh my understanding is that they are generally lower income than their than than a lot of other sort of urban suburban students that might be going to might be headed to college that could be that could be true um so the average percentage
1: of free and reduced lunch at our, in our within our sig mm-hmm. is about 45%. Mm-hmm. um that is hovering right around the national average okay. or so um and so certainly in some communities deeply low income some communities have a little bit more money.
0: Do you find that there's at least maybe a deficit in terms of understanding the you know, concept of meeting full financial need and stuff Absolutely. when you get to that community? That's part of the information you're hoping to kind of get out right. to these So, groups.
1: So I point to really um, social capital, right? And the access to information and understanding um, that there are schools that meet full need or there are schools with significant need-based financial aid programs. Um, because you don't have a network of students who are regularly going on to those types schools, whereas in urban centers, even if they're not going from your school, you are competing in volleyball matches against other schools, and and so you have um, a lot more access to people, Um, and that might be students going to uh, selective colleges, that might be teachers who have gone to selective colleges. That's usually not as present in rural spaces, Mm -hmm. Um, and so there is a lack of information that we are trying to um, instill within school counselors specifically. I see school counselors as these gatekeepers and these helpers of students if we can get to a school counselor um, and offer these free resources 10 years down the road, they might be still using those free resources versus a student um, who is going to go to college. And then we have to pick up where the next cohort of students really comes in.
0: Because do you think it, it's, I mean, in some sort of sort of weird paradoxical way, there are some schools that maybe only have, you know, that, that it's it's a luxury to be able to go and recruit Rural students, because on the one hand, maybe they have the resources in terms Mm -hmm. of personnel and time and travel expenses and everything to even get there. Let's say that's even part of the strategy in person to get there. But then also to be able to enroll, you know, some of those students that might be not necessarily among the 45 percent that are free and reduced lunch, but maybe the next tier over that still need a lot of help. Right. And if you're a really tuition dependent school, then that might you might be making a different choice. Yeah. Yeah. I don't think that that
1: necessarily means we shouldn't be interacting with those communities, right? And so um, I don't think that uh, we need to say, well, we can't go out on the road and visit these rural schools, therefore we can't do this kind of work. There's a lot of ways that we can do this work and the SIG is trying to help with this, right? Mm -hmm. So we offer all 12,000 of those schools um, free of charge to our SIG members, right? All 1,200 of our our members have access to that. Mm -hmm. Um, We're building a national counselor database Right now, we have more than 150 individual colleges that have agreed we will share our information about these 12,000 rural schools, contact information for high school counselors, for example, um, in order to retrieve this uh, national database back, right? And so, if we have 400 at Swarthmore and UCLA has 1,700, and all of these other schools out of 150 schools have really kind of the national database, we could come up with thousands and thousands thousands of high school counselors where you could easily send them email for free, right? You can interact with them on Skype or some other web platform for free. One thing that we're doing here at Swarthmore, because we want to be sensitive to the broadband issue of not all counselors and students have access to broadband, is we are holding these um, web sessions um, for folks who can access um, live sessions. Hmm. But we're also mailing out USB drives of these recorded conversations, right? So it's a 45- Minute information session about Swarthmore. In the last fifteen minutes, an admission officer will um, call that school and will answer questions um, from that group of students and those and that counselor, so that they can have sort of this live version. Right? We just have to be really innovative with our yeah. ideas in order to reach these folks, as opposed to just saying, "Well, we can't afford to send a recruiter out on the road to this rural space because we're not going to have the return on investment." I don't think. Um, I th- I think we can reject. That notion and come up with these innovative uh, ways to reach them.
0: Really cool. What are you what, what are you hearing from these school counselors in terms of the kind of help that they want?
1: They want access to information. Um, they want access to us as admission officers as well. So, um, you know, we hear quite a bit um, around, well, I didn't know that counselor fly-in uh, uh, programs exist. I didn't know that student fly-in programs exist, right? I don't know anything about, um, you know, meaningful financial need and what that means for our families. So we're trying to put together those resources for counselors. Mm-hmm. So we have an um, 83-page uh, document highlighting more than 60 colleges that offer these all of paid fly-in programs to their students. Mm-hmm. Um, that has been wildly popular um, after we, as a SIG, asked the questions of colleges, compiled it into a guide, as opposed to each individual high school counselor going out and seeking that information on their Making own. Their own. Um, yeah. So we're really trying to do, um, uh, do some of these activities so that uh, counselors know that this information exists.
0: How do you, or have you had to do work with... Colleges that might have traditionally called that the multicultural visitation Mm, program mm -hmm. where the fly-in program is really about uh, creating a pathway to access for mm-hmm. underrepresented racial and ethnic minorities, right. and you've got students that are similarly experiencing difficulty in terms of access in rural communities, right. but aren't underrepresented racial or ethnic groups.
1: So uh, I'll, I'll correct the record a bit. Uh, one is that about a quarter of all students in rural spaces are students of color. Right. Sure. And so um, you can meet some of your goals that way um, by including rural students who have largely been disenfranchised in this college access pipeline. Um, if you wanted to maintain this fly-in program for underrepresented racial minorities, right? You can still do that. Mm-hmm. Um, but but more broadly speaking, um, when I started my position here at Swarthmore four years ago, um, my position was director of access. It was my job to think about underserved students broadly, um, and so. So that's students of color and undocumented students and rural and small town students among many other populations. So the foundation here was really ripe in that our definition of diversity and inclusion included folks who have been largely left out of higher education. And that's rural and small town students, right? And so I often meet with college admission officers that say, how do I convince my boss, my VP, our president, that we need to care about this population, right? Um, And I start with that conversation around, well, how do you all identify goals of diversity and inclusion, right? And so if your definition really is more broad in that you want to seek out voices that are largely left out of higher education, well, let's look at the data. And I share the data, right? So one thing that we're creating as a SIG is a holistic review presentation. So oftentimes, um, those of us who employ holistic review are going through these reader training Mm -hmm. sessions. Mm -hmm. They might be multi-day, it might be one day. um, And oftentimes, rural and small town issues are, are left out. Um, not because they, they're they intentionally left out, it's because not a lot of college admissions officers are working with this data. And so we as a SIG are putting together this, this data. It might be an hour, it might be 15 minutes, depending on how much time at reader training you have, so that you can educate your the members of your admissions staff on these issues and what the data actually says. Um, so I would just advise uh, admission officers to, to take a more uh, broad-based approach. Um, what the guide Does the council the student fly in guide? um, It actually highlights whether or not colleges are being more affirmative in admitting rural students to their fly in. So it's not that all 60 of these are super duper rural friendly, it's that um, you can get this information from the guide and make a determination on your own.
0: Mm -hmm. What do you what kind of pushback are folks do folks feel like they might be getting from leadership such that they need to seek your counsel to try to? push back, further and make the case?
1: Yeah, I think um, the, the traditional um, sort of pushback that you might see is we're trying to do everything, right? Um, oftentimes, offices don't have directors of college access or an inclusion. It's usually a director of multicultural recruitment. You know, and that's, schools are
0: spread pretty thin, right?
1: Right. It's very narrowly defined oftentimes. And so I'm not suggesting that the person who's in charge of um, seeking out you know underrepresented students of color are also taxed. With all of these other things. I think admission leaders, people like me in positions of leadership, need to recognize that in order to achieve all of these goals, right probably more than a dozen institutional priorities is what we say in terms of the admissions lingo right um, We need to employ people who can do this work and we need to tap into these networks like the Sig where we can actually get some free resources where we don't need to um, we don't need to look up the data. we don't need to put in all of this time and effort we could just tap into an existing network like this.
0: Hmm. I have it in my brain that there is this demographic thing going on uh, in rural communities where they're in decline. Is that accurate?
1: Yeah, it's accurate. Um... So it's really tough to actually say that as well because the census will define rural communities and adjust their definitions, usually every census. So it looks like the number of, st- of people in rural communities is actually going down, but sometimes that has more to do with the way that the federal government defines rural communities. So it's really tough to say that the the raw number or the percentage of population is going down just because of some of those nuances to the federal data. Um, but certainly Certainly, there are schools that are closing um, as a result of not being able to, um, you know, uh, recruit teachers and have all of these um, st- all of these students that are enrolled. And so K-12 sometimes K twelve mm-hmm. schools, right? So sometimes there's some co- consolidation. Mm-hmm. Um, there have been lots of media reports, especially in the Midwest and the Northeast, of a, of consolidating schools because they're not able to um, to hold one entire school for that community, which creates challenges in terms of um, sort of geographic proximity and transportation issues and getting to those schools um, so uh, generally I would agree with that premise um, but I'm not a rural researcher so I can't yeah. specifically say that
0: yeah um, it seems that potentially the efforts are ramping up as the population is ramping mm-hmm. down you know I think mm-hmm. that it's obviously it's it's tough for I think a lot of young people these days to and then especially you know and it's a concern that I you know, have, have had, and and not just me, but a lot of people when it comes to, let's say Puerto Rico, Mm -hmm. you know, that you and I have Mm -hmm. talked about a little Mm -hmm. bit too. And it's this issue that, that I have is that, um, uh, there's a gigantic barrier between uh, students being able to access college on the mainland, mm-hmm. um, similar in fashion to anybody from any other U.S. state. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's really just a function of them being Puerto Rico and being a Spanish speaking mm-hmm. community and everything like that. There's a bunch of other stuff, too. Mm-hmm. But um, one, so on the one hand, you want to be able to provide them with uh, at least the option, the opportunity, mm-hmm. the equal access, right? Same thing that you're trying to do. On the other hand, there's this system that is very strong in Puerto Rico of 11 or 12 campuses that make up the University Mm -hmm. of Puerto Rico network that is really responsible for their Mm -hmm. having, you know, a very, a pretty strong middle class. Mm -hmm. And so you, as opposed to, you know, some rural communities Mm -hmm. where there really isn't the college option there, Mm -hmm. you know, Puerto Rico has Mm -hmm. that there. And so you're, if you enroll many students from Puerto Rico, you, you you are contributing in some small fashion to the brain drain away mm. from mm-hmm. uh, not just their... You know, uh, uh, shoring up that university system, mm-hmm. but then also being probably less likely to return home mm-hmm. uh, after going mm-hmm. to college in the mainland. And I wonder if something like that might similarly be at play with rural students. That in a demographic situation such as the one that we may be in, mm-hmm. neither of us are demographers, mm-hmm. but the, but we've heard this, and it's not crazy to assume that you know if somebody goes to college in Philadelphia, mm-hmm. uh, that they're less likely to then go seek out mm-hmm. you know a life for themselves in their old former rural community, I think a lot of people kind of like you are like, get me the fuck out of here. Right. You know, and and it's, and it's, it's a tough sell to head back. What do you think about that? Right. You know, uh, I've had that uh, pop up a
1: lot uh, in talking with rural counselors, talking with um, folks who are serving these students who say like, what do we tell the families, right? What do we tell the families when they say, if I send my, my, Student to college, they're not going to come back. Um, and the truth of the matter is, is that's a distinct possibility. Um, but what I also say is, in order to um, rebuild rural communities, we have to have college-educated people, folks who are going on to post-secondary education. Right? Identifying opportunities. There, there are some um, uh, new millennial networks of people on social media that I follow that are um, sort of going against the grain. They're going going back to their communities. They're, they're um, starting some startups or small businesses um, within their rural communities because they love their community. They love where they come from. Um, and they're going to reject the notion that just because they're college educated um, or they went away for school that they need to stay away, right? Um, and I think we need to lift up those narratives. And I think we need to lift up those um, opportunities that students might have, right? Being a teacher in your hometown, um, starting a small business in your hometown. Um, it's not easy. Um, certainly we need more, um, I think government investment in infrastructure, um, and tax incentives in order to do that. Um, but you know, it's a, it's a really tough, um, challenge because we know that some students will not return home, um, because they're, the economic opportunities don't, um, don't lend themselves to to going back and returning.
0: And certainly, you know, students like yourself, you know, when you grew up, you know, you're going to find communities that are going to be a lot more accepting mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. outside of the one that you came from, Right, and that it would take a pretty large-scale, you know... Uh, Movement of people right uh, who have left for those kinds of reasons to return and help to change absolutely. the tide right
1: absolutely um, you know you know I think of I think of being an LGBT person um, and going back to a small community things have changed uh, for the better in the last fifteen years of graduating high school yeah. um, that's certainly true we have LGBT people in every single county in the United States right according to the census and so in order to make those changes in smaller communities and rural communities and sometimes just um, communities that don't have as much exposure we As LGBT people, or whoever you you might be talking about, um, we need to be in those communities. We need to tell our stories as well, right? Um, And so that bolsters a notion that we do need to return, maybe not permanently, but we do need to return to our communities oftentimes um, to tell those stories and to ensure that folks know who we are. Um, And I think in in this day and age, with our politics the way that it is, social media, um, and sort of this echo chamber of just listening to the same voices over and over again, um, that can that can be really challenging and so what I love about what we're trying to do with the SIG um, is that we're trying to create this national network of people um, who care about this one thing rural college access but also um, create these small networks and Mm -hmm. so we're starting something called SIG discussions where it's between 10 and 15 people who are online um, and they might be talking about k-12 education uh, or k-12 counseling right so we have folks who are college counselors but they serve the entire school wouldn't it be great if they could talk with other people in their same shoes, um, doing dealing with some of the same challenges that they might be dealing with? Um, so we want to break down this huge national network of people in these smaller communities.
0: That's really cool. So now is the time of year when, you know, I mean, as I alluded to earlier, that uh, college admissions folks are, you know, hammering out the, 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 what remains of their fall travel mm-hmm. schedule, you mm-hmm. know, and, and you talked before about being really creative in, in the, uh, approach to finding these communities in such a way that it doesn't necessarily involve being physically there and going mm-hmm. to visit, but let's say that they are, let's say mm-hmm. that they want to do that. Where do they start to do that? Because I think that one of the problems that I, you know, I know <clears throat> that we encountered, uh, with limited, Mm -hmm. resources, Mm -hmm. time, money, et cetera, energy to go and do stuff out on the road is, well, we have to sort of go where, you know, as a chicken and egg concern, yeah. right? Because we would want to go places where we either know we get applications mm-hmm. or we would like to be getting more yes. applications and, and they fit a bill of a kind of yes. place that we should be getting more applications from, so we're gonna go and visit those schools. But these places where you might have a really small graduating class yep. and, you know, all of these other kinds of complications where you're maybe not likely to see, you know, a bunch of applications there, you know, how do you begin the search to try to find the, you know, in addition to just sort of following your tweets at Every day and looking right. at those schools, what, <laughs> how, how, how do you do that? We um, have, a co- you're, you're I have a couple counseling.
1: of a couple of suggestions. Um, one to join the SIG. Mm-hmm. I think joining the SIG is it's free. You don't have to be a NACAC member to join. You don't have to be an ACAC mem- member. Um, so all of these regional affiliates of, of NACAC, um, and a full sixty percent of the people that are in our SIG are not NACAC members. And so we're trying to um, expand our outreach to folks who wouldn't otherwise have professional development funds for example, to join this. Um, we have a public directory of more than 500 of those people. Um, and that's school counselors, that's admission officers. And so if admission officers were saying, hmm, which high school counselors actually want us to visit, right? That's a pretty good starting point um, of of folks who have uh, sort of said, I want to be public. I want you to visit me. Um, this is important to me and my community, right? Um, so that might be one place to start. Um, another thing uh, that an that, uh, a mission officer can employ, and this might not be for this fall, but something that we have done at Swarthmore is we have cast a really wide net for our fly-in program called Discover Swarthmore, and we ask uh, high school counselors to nominate students um, who might be good fits, and we specifically delineate rural and small town on that list that we're seeking out. Um, When I started here um, four years ago, we had 356 nominations. This year, we ended at more than 10,000. And so what that nomination list is doing for us is it provides this national database of school counselors and community-based organization advisors who have nominated more than one student from their organization. So what I do with my staff is I say, okay, if a person is going to sit there and nominate 10 students from their school, they're probably going to take the time, if you want to visit to get those students into a room, hmm. right? Um, and so it's thinking, where do we have good partners and what what I call champions within these communities? Um, and so there are ways that you could also employ kind of a homegrown system of identifying rural spaces where you might want to go. And then finally, um, I think it's easy as I had an admissions officer who said, I'm driving from um, I think Seattle to Vancouver, Washington, um, and I'm just driving, like there's nothing else that I'm doing, right? So maybe I could stop into a few places and visit with school counselors and maybe their students. Um, That's something easy that you could do from the SIG, download those 12,000 high schools. If you are in charge of Washington State, um, filter those out, get those into Google Maps and see which places are actually on your route. Um, what I'd recommend is not just to show up, though. Oftentimes, as, as admission officers, um, we are visiting these places that are are hosting more than 100 uh, colleges every year. Um, rural places don't uh, host that many people. So, we just did this survey and we found that the average number of um, visits that rural places were hosting was about five versus more than 70 Over on the, the urban of the whole side. Fall. Right, exactly. Yeah. Right. Um, and so, you can't just roll up because oftentimes school counselors don't necessarily know what a college what visit actually it. is. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, what I would recommend doing is setting up maybe a 10 minute phone call two weeks in advance and saying, Hey, this is who we are, this is who we're looking for i'm gonna come in for the first time um and i if i you don't have any students for me i'd love to visit with you right just so that the school counselor understands the expectations that right. you have as an admissions officer and then the last thing that i'll mention is that the sig is actually hosting a session in two weeks on what is a college visit for Shit, school well, counselors. get this out before then <laughs> <laughs> it's going to be recorded, though. Okay, you, can, good, okay. you, can, you can access it afterward. But it's I will. Going to, it'll,
0: it'll, it'll, happen, it'll happen.
1: It's going to feature two college admission officers and two high school counselors. And they're going to lay out what college planning tools are available, like rep hmm. visits and yeah. Calendly. Um, what do you do when you host a college, right? Because we're finding that a lot of our SIG members don't regularly host colleges to visit them. So we want to make sure that they have the tools in front of them.
0: Really cool. I mean, and I would imagine, and I, I this it's the part that I like the most about admissions travel is going places I've never been before. And I think just in the spirit of, you know, being a, you know, an an intrepid, Mm -hmm. you know, modern day anthropologist, you Mm -hmm. know, looking for... Different pieces of this country, this world, you know, this uh, human race. You know, you right. might just be motivated by that to right. just go and check out some places that you would never otherwise be inclined right. to do. What have been some of the more interesting places for you that you've uh, experienced in this rural Oof. mission of yours?
1: Yeah, um, I've been to the Navajo Nation. That was really interesting. Um, it was not just a college admissions um, sort of trip. It was really listening to um, the tribal elders and understanding what kind of challenges and assets they have in their communities and and meeting with folks who are serving these students and meeting with their families, right? So it was really comprehensive in terms of what the program really is. Um, and it was led by a SIG member, um, just really incredible uh, person, Dara, um, up on the Navajo Nation. Um, so that's been really interesting. I've been able to do some interesting things here in Pennsylvania as well. I think all colleges should first start in their own backyard. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if you are 45 minutes to an hour outside of your location, um, that's going to be prime territory where, um, especially if you're a selective college, these school counselors are going to say, you've never visited us before. Why are you visiting us now, right? Um, and it's really building trust and returning to those communities over and over again. Um, and the, the, the day that I mentioned in Parsons, Tennessee, was just fascinating to have this community conversation, um, to understand from a, um, a school counselor's point of view of what kind of impact impact it, it it has on students where a college says, I'm sorry, we don't accept dual enrollment credits, right? Credits that you're earning in high school um, by attending college classes. Many selective schools have these, you know, sort of blanket rules against this. And, and for college admission officers to hear that conversation and to understand that impact, we might not be able to change those things, but we can bring those perspectives back to our college campuses and have those conversations with the decision makers, right? A lot of this is really listening and learning from one another, as opposed to college admission officers, going into these spaces and saying, "I think I know what you need, and I'm gonna, I'm gonna teach you my ways," right? That is not something that I recommend. I really recommend that we build these collaborative um, relationships.
0: A couple more questions: the um, what, because so much of this is about the the direction of the conversation being between mm-hmm. school counselors and and. Mm-hmm. in rural communities, and then mm-hmm. admissions counselors. Mm-hmm. Uh, what about school counselors that aren't in rural communities, people that are you know, well-resourced yes. uh, in their own communities? It might be in urban or suburban yep. uh, areas. How can they contribute to something like this? That's
1: great. Uh, we have a small working group for those folks. Uh, it's called the Public-Private Partnerships Working Group. And what this working group is trying to do is uh, we have a, a really diverse membership within our SIG, and we do have have folks who are in urban centers, suburban areas who are at either public or or independent schools that want to help. They, they, sometimes they grew up in rural spaces and now they're, they're sort of rolling up their sleeves and they want to assist, right? Um, Or they might be in more rural areas, but they are the boarding school in that rural area, right? And so we're looking at how do we leverage that kind of privilege to assist and to to lift up all communities, right? And so we're trying to create a counselor resource guide um, and this guide is going to go over application fee waivers and financial aid information and QuestBridge and all these other things that a lot of these counselors, usually in in urban and suburban spaces, have access to this knowledge because they see these college admission officers. They're able to go to the counselor breakfasts that we hold. They're able to go to NACAC conference and all these other things. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it's bringing those folks together in intentional and thoughtful ways um, where they can share that type of knowledge with one another. Um, we also are. Are, um, employing this 50 state strategy, it's called state captains uh, within the SIG, where we will have two state captains for every single state out there. Because we realize we can only do so much on the national level of doing this kind of outreach and bringing folks into the fold that are not NACAC members. So we need people who are local in that community to do that work, and sometimes those are going to be those private independent school counselors that are connected. For example, I just had a conversation with a, a person in Vermont who is at one of these places that has more resources. And he's like, I feel kind of awkward being a state captain for Vermont. I don't want to take that space away from anyone else. Um, And I said, listen, if there are folks that are volunteering from those spaces, I will let you know, but you are the one that's going to these state level conferences. You are working with policymakers. Like you have the ear of these folks. And so the more that you can do this outreach within your state, the better. Um, Just trying to fold in as many folks
0: as possible. And I don't want to leave out also independent counselors that might be uh, interested in helping out right, uh, we do have would them be in our in awkward our. Awkward um... of me to do that, <laughs> and then also to mention that you know organizations such as CollegeWise yes. do have a ton of free resources, including Common App Guide, yes. Guide to University of California System, and all of that mm-hmm. kind of stuff that uh, I am sharing now by stating it on uh, <laughs> the record That's here great. on the recording, but also uh, it's uh, easy to find on the, on the internet. I want to also ask you because you've done a really good job, obviously, of measuring you know the impact mm-hmm. so far. Of of things are going on in terms of membership and mm-hmm, activity and mm-hmm. where they are and sharing resources and stuff, you know, in a couple of years, mm-hmm. how are you going to be able to, to gather information about whether this, uh, effort that you're working on has had an impact in terms of enrollment in college?
1: Yeah, we, um, we have thought about that. We've talked about that point. Uh, we're not sure where that's going to head yet. Um, one interesting... Getting data out
0: of colleges is tough.
1: Getting data out of colleges <laughs> is really tough. Um, par- but we could partner with national organizations like Coalition for College or NACAC and see where we can make some inroads there. You
0: might be looking at, you know, zip codes and stuff to just Right. Like see there, are,
1: are there are different ways to do this. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, something else that we have thought about is putting together this list of 12,000 high schools and and asking our college members, now go in, now that uh, travel season is over with, tell us who you engaged with. That might be a phone call, Skype session, physical visit, so that we can track this year after year. I don't know if colleges are gonna do that. Uh, It is Mm. by seed code, so it should be relatively easy, but I know that we're all busy. Um, And so we're trying to think about that kind of impact.
0: arguably be a very simple thing for people to just sort of add into their little Slate instance, right? To designate schools as such.
1: Right, right. And um, I'm always taking phone calls with folks who wanna do that, add it to Slate and uh, make sure that Rural shows up on their dashboard when they're reading files. We do that here at Swarthmore. So I'm always willing to have those phone calls with folks who wanna do this work Better.
0: be be careful what you ask for no that's i i hundreds of that. thousands of people listen to this <laughs> podcast they're all gonna call it, uh i hope um <laughs> That they call you. Well, uh, it'll be, I, I can't imagine it won't have an impact down the road. It'll be cool to see however you're able to wrap your head around that later, you know, mm-hmm. what that looks like. So mm-hmm. keep up the uh, really great work. Let any, all of us know how we can help. we Will do. And uh, thanks again for making time for me today. Thank you. Uh,
1: enjoy India. Thank you very much. My first time. Do you,
0: uh, where are you going to go? I'm going to Mumbai and Delhi. Uh, I went to Mumbai a long time ago. This okay. is uh, I took a gap year oh. and I was there for two months Wow and one of the people that I met there we stayed in touch with oh on Facebook. His mm-hmm. name is Sham Jacob mm-hmm. and um, a few years ago he you know he sends me a note and he says, uh, yeah, I'm getting married to a woman from New mm-hmm. Jersey and I'm moving to Harlem and I wow. said I live in Harlem <laughs> and right now, I'm talking to you, and my wife is teaching her first mm-hmm. day of classes at Baruch, and uh, my daughter is with Sam and his shaman his wow. wife uh, Suja. Uh, huh. I'm gonna go swing by West Orange to wow. uh, to to pick him up at it's her greasy. sister's house. So huh. the world Full is circle. small. Get yeah. out there and Absolutely. meet people, right. no matter where they are. Right, India, yes, small town America, right. I'm excited. Right on. Well, it'll be a great trip. Have a lot of fun and uh, look forward to seeing you again uh, in Louisville, if not uh, sooner and certainly after. Sounds good. Thanks Thanks a million. Thank you. A reminder that you can follow Andrew on Twitter at Andrew S. Moe, and keep tabs on what's going on with all of this work. And of course, if you're going to the NACAC conference in Louisville in a few weeks and you'd like to connect with the Rural and Small Town Special Interest Group, or SIG, the meetup is on Thursday, September 26th at 1145 at L016. Please write that down. College admissions counseling can take you to some pretty amazing places, as we heard from uh, Andrew, who, who shared with us his amazing itinerary. But the truth is that most of the places admission counselors go are pretty well-worn and familiar paths. And as we heard, they don't tend to go to rural places. So I hope that people who listen to this can get inspired to beat some new ones between those big urban centers and their satellite burbs that they tend to return to year after year and know so well. So while most of your travel planning, admissions counselors, is likely done or close to it, I hope that this interview arrives just in time for you to realize that, in fact, you've got just a little bit more work to do as you add some visits to some rural and small town communities. You're welcome. But look, it'll be a real service you're doing to people who need it, and as you heard from Andrew, there are ways to make that impact with little to no cost to your travel budget or your precious time spent in a rental car that doubles as your office and also your trash can so happy trails to you admissions counselors and for you school counselors listening consider that if you're one of those places that makes up the little goodie bags for admissions reps that you don't use those little tiny water plastic water bottles that contain like three sips and will end up inside the kidney of an endangered sea turtle Or, hey, if you have to put a beverage into one of those little bags, make it one of those little airline-sized bottles of tequila or something. Has anybody ever done that? Send me an email if so. I've always wanted to know if there was a a counseling office anywhere out there that put those little airline bottles of booze in, in the bags for admissions reps. I never got that lucky myself personally. Anyways, thanks for listening, everybody. Happy fall. More soon. Stay tuned. Spread love.